Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Today's episode is brought to you by The Heroine's Knot, an online community for creative creatures on the quest for self-expression and collective renewal. In this group, we untangle the knots of our contemporary creative lives, connect to the greater web, and weave new stories. Part healing space, part writing and creative community, part innovation incubator, part training ground for heroines seeking practical and magical solutions to the individual and collective dilemmas that shape our modern world. In The Heroine's Knot, we call on mythology, archetypal wisdom, and our relationship with nature. We root into something wild and timeless, even as we design something new and necessary that will guide our next evolutionary steps. Learn more about the Heroines Not community over on my website, marisagowdy.com, or check the show notes for the link. Episode 5, Bright and Obscure, Stories of the Irish Goddess Anya. Our guest storyteller is Jen Murphy. Jen is the creator of Celtic Embodiment, a cutting-edge modality that fuses the ancient wisdom of Celtic mythology with the emerging field of feminine embodiment coaching to transform modern life for women. Jen is a certified feminine embodiment coach and holds a degree in medieval Irish and Celtic studies and an MA in the Anthropology of Development. Coming from a lineage of storytellers and wisdom keepers on her maternal line, Jen is fascinated by the natural coalescence between our ancestral myths and our bodies as a potent brew to reclaim our sovereign power. I am so happy to welcome Jen Murphy back to the podcast. Jen was with us in season one and shared the story of the Silky, of the Seal Woman. And today, she's going to share with us the story of Anya, a goddess who is at once so bright and at once so obscure. In many ways, Anya is a goddess, is a character without a story. But we do have bits and bobs, little ideas, little details that can be woven together. So I'm going to invite Jen to just offer us what she can, offer us what we have of Anya, and then see where that beginning of a story takes us. Oh, thank you so much, Marisa. I am just so happy to be back on this magical podcast. And yeah, so Anya, Anya is an obscure character that features maybe less so in our mythology and more in our folklore. And what's really curious to me is that Anya is a really popular woman's or you know girl's name in Ireland I know so many Anyas I have a niece called Anya and the name actually means a number of things so it can mean brightness luster glow radiance splendor brilliance wit glory so 
It's a really beautiful name to be given. And interestingly, in the mythology as well, you also see Anya as an epithet. So you see men with the name Anya as well. So they might have a first name like Aliel and then Anya afterwards. That is really describing their own brightness, their own radiance, and is a beautiful nod to the goddess as well. So in terms of Anya's lineage, we do know that she is of the Tuha Daedanon, of Ireland's supernatural race, the tribe of the goddess Danu. We don't know who her mother is, as far as I understand, but we do have a couple of interpretations of who her father is, most commonly Egoville, who is basically of the Tuatha Dé as well. She's often connected to Monaghan MacLear, who is a sea deity, a sea god in Celtic mythology. He's sometimes named as her father or her husband. But Egoville, who is most commonly her father, is actually the, is he the foster son, perhaps, of Monaghan MacLear. So that's really all that is available to us in terms of her immediate lineage. But what's really interesting about Anya is it's thought that perhaps she is an old sun goddess and she is sometimes equated with green. So green is the Irish word for sun, but Anya is described as having a sister called green. And we know in Celtic mythology, particularly with the triple goddess, that often the sister aspect is the same as the goddess herself. It's just a different form of the goddess. And in County Limerick, where that is really Anya's stronghold in Munster in the south of Ireland, there's a hill called Canuck Anya. So in the anglicised version of that is Knockaini, which is a town in County Limerick. And that is Anya's kingdom, essentially, Canuck Anya. But about 10k down the road, there is another hill called Canuck Greena. So after Green, the sun goddess. So potentially, again, just this other aspect of Anya on the land. And this whole area of Limerick from Loch Burr and Grange Stone Circle is Anya's kingdom. And my curiosity in Anya, like, has really only been very recent because, and and it comes from personal reasons. So my grandfather, Christy O'Sullivan was his name, O'Sullivan. He was from that area of Limerick. So I like to imagine him roaming around Grange Stone Circle, which is the largest stone circle in Ireland with 113 standing stones. So on Anya's land on Loch Gurr. But he died when he was younger than I am now, when he was 37. and so. His brother, Benny, played a big role in raising my mother and her six siblings with my grandmother, Frances. And Benny just died recently. He died a couple of months ago, which is real, really tender for our family. And so, yeah, like since his passing, I've just been feeling so drawn to that place in Ireland and to Anya and her land. And This year, when we passed through the midsummer time, which is really Anya's time, I was really feeling into the energy of the O'Sullivans, of my mother's, her father's side. And it's said, actually, and there's records of this, that 
around the midsummer, so from the solstice to St. John's Eve, that people in this area of Ireland would light what are called clears, so torches made from hay and straw, and they would follow a procession that was in honour of Anya and that Anya herself would lead this procession along with the fairies because in our folklore, Anya is not a sun goddess. She's actually a fairy queen. And there's really interesting little folkloric stories from the area as well. You know, so this tradition is called Anya Clear. So kind of the torches of Anya. But there's actually a local story of a fairy called Anne Clear. So if you took Anya and put her into like kind of anglicized Anya, it would be probably Anne So Anne Clear. And there's this whole story that there was a stone with the footprint of this fairy called Anne Clear in the local river. And nobody would go near it until it was removed in 1932 to build a bridge. So, yeah, so there's so much there from the goddess, from the fairy queen to just a fairy woman and lots of superstition and magic around Anya as well. Oh, wow. I mean, I feel like this launches a hundred different potential stories, right, Jen, with everything you just dropped in. And I have to just underline a remarkable bit of commonality you and I have in that, as you say, your mother's father's side comes from Limerick. And I realize that my mother's father's side comes from Limerick as well, probably a good bit further back before they emigrated to Canada. But like I said, there's so many stories here. I wonder, do you want to tell us the tale of Anya and Elul Olam or where do you want to go next? Yeah, I suppose let's start in the mythology because there is a really fascinating kind of connection with Anya and sovereignty. Mm. And just to say as well, I love hearing about your connection to Limerick as well. That just oh, makes my heart sing. Oh, wait, can I tell you one other thing? Another point yes. of connection? So I want to just offer my condolences to your family for the loss of your Uncle Benny. I went to the family home. It was the, the Russells right on the Shannon. There's just a wall left with my grandfather's brother. My, it's wow. the same exact relation. I, I did know my grandfather. Fortunately, he passed when I was 12, but I knew my Uncle Harold well into my 20s and 30s. And I went with him and his wife, Anne, to the Russell family home right in Limerick. Wow. So, oh my God. The great <laughs> uncles. Yeah. The great <laughs> uncles weaving their magic. Yes, I love yes, it. Yeah. Yes. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. I'm glad they're here with us today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I really feel that too. So, yeah, I suppose like on the sovereignty front. So there is a story in the mythology concerning this king of Munster. Again, it's a province in the south of Ireland called Aliel Ullam. And the story goes that Aliel left his horses to graze on Knuck Anya, on Anya's hill. And he goes to see them one day. And when he arrives, he sees that the hill, so all of the grasses have been stripped bare and his horses are gone. So he's absolutely perplexed. He's like, what has happened? You know, like, who is the culprit? Because there's nobody to be seen. 
And so he retreats and returns then at the following Samhain. So as you know, but just for the listeners as well, that Samhain is the time of year when the veil is thinnest between this world and the other world. Samhain is the Irish word for the month of November. So they go back at Samhain. Um, Aliel, along with his fella, his poet, um, Fergus. And while they're there, Aliel gets lulled into this deep slumber. And then out from the other world arrives Anya and her father, Egoville. And they're playing this bronze timpon, so this kind of archaic form of an Irish harp, essentially. And when they arrive, um, the story goes that Egoville goes to enter Canuck Anya, okay, because Canuck Anya is a fairy mound. It's a fairy hill. It's a hollow hill, a place of the sheep. But the poet, Fergus, basically attacks him. He attacks him from behind and he breaks his back and Anya's father dies on the spot there. And with that, then, Aliel Olam then attacks Anya, like he forces himself upon her. And so in retaliation, she sucks his ear. She sucks the skin, the flesh off his ear. So his ear is completely bare. And that's where the Ephitesh Olam comes from, because it actually means bare ear in Old Irish. And there's a reason why Anya does this, because in ancient Ireland, a king could not rule. There's this kind of bizarre rule that a king could not rule if he was maimed. And so she maims Aliel in retaliation and as a result, maims his kingship. He can no longer rule. And this kind of theme of stripping bear runs throughout this story because like by him stripping bear, allowing his horses basically to graze on a sacred site on, you know, a site of the Tuatadan and he is insulted, the goddesses and gods. And so they strip the whole place bare and then his ear is stripped bare because he's an unjust king. And so his kingship then is stripped bare, is stripped from him by Anya. And, you know, in some variations of this story as well, it goes on then, you know, and this could be a later edition. I don't know. I'm just kind of making an assumption here. But it's said that Anya becomes pregnant with Owen and Owen goes on then to become the king of Munster after his father, Owen after the kingship is stripped from his father. And he creates then the Owenacht dynasty, which was a dynasty in early medieval Ireland. So we've got this kind of this claim from a family, from a dynasty of this connection to the goddess. And we actually see this. What's really interesting is, so this story is definitely rooted in like the Gaelic clans in early Irish pseudo history as such in the mythology as well. But we actually see a later iteration of this story concerning Gerald, who is the Earl of Desmond. So a Hiberno-Norman family that arrive in Ireland, you know, from, I don't know, about like the 11th, 12th century. I know Gerald lived in, I think he lived in around, yeah, the 14th century. But anyway, so the story, this story around Gerald really, like it imitates the story of Aliel quite extraordinarily in a way. Um, so Gerald is sometimes named as Anya's lover, her husband, her attacker, her son. But in one version of the story, the story where he is her son, it is said that his father, Morris, 
came upon Anya one day when she's in Locker. And so she's in the lake combing her hair, right? So this symbol of her combing her hair, again, I just want to pause to acknowledge this because Anya is a fairy woman. She is a banshee, a woman of the hollow hills of the fairy mounds. That's where banshee originally comes from. And so this combing of the hair we see later in the more kind of folkloric, uh, terrifying, wailing banshee. But the banshee is a very, very old archetype, a really powerful archetype in Irish mythology um, that helps people pass over to the other world. So Anya is there as a banshee combing her hair. And so Morris just becomes absolutely fatuated by her and decides then to steal her mantle. So her magical cloak, and he leaves her vulnerable then. And then again, he forces himself upon her. And so in retaliation, in some versions, she turns him into a goose. In other versions, she kills him. And then in yes, other versions of this story, they're actually married. But ultimately, she becomes pregnant with Gerald. Okay, so with Gerald Fitzgerald, this Earl of Desmond. And Gerald grows up to become a very magical child. So it's said that he can shrink himself and jump in and out of a bottle, which, you know, is a real kind of, in the folklore, real allusion to the fairies, the Dini Maha, the good people, particularly the small people in our folklore. And that he becomes skilled in sorcery, basically, and becomes a wizard. So again, it's this family making a political claim with the goddess Anya. And what's really interesting, actually, is that Gerald himself disappears in 1398. And since then, there has been this story that he now lives under Loch Gur, under the lake. And every seven years that he appears out from under the lake, riding this white ghostly horse, he himself as a phantom, leading a procession of fairies in honour of his mother Anya. So like in this way, for me, when I look at this, this is Anya as the sovereignty goddess playing that sovereignty aspect. And maybe Anya isn't traditionally seen as a sovereignty goddess, but these stories really allude to her retaliating to the kind of the masculine domination of her land by attacking both Aliel and Morris, who have attacked her and tried to claim the sovereignty, tried to claim her as the symbol of the land of nature. And they suffer the consequences as a result because they are not just rulers in how they have approached their kingship. Oh, wow, Jen, you do such a brilliant job of, I didn't need to be convinced that Anya was in many ways a quintessential sovereignty goddess, but you really just lay it out so brilliantly that I think it helps describe the whole, what sovereignty really is and what it was always meant to be, both in terms of the goddess's embodiment of the land and the great protectress, and then the ruler, the king, there to also be a protector, but in his aligned human form. I think you just, it's so brilliant. I really am grateful for you laying it out in that way. Oh yeah, no, you're so welcome. And you know, to emphasize again that Anya is obscure to me as well, but I really, I just feel that there is a nugget around this sovereignty aspect. Mm. And interestingly, I 
discovered on Ducas on our National Folkloric Collection. This record from 1938 of a folktale around Anya, where she's actually an old woman. So I'll share that folktale now. And Marisa, I know we've, you know, experienced this folktale together before. So just a warning that it is, it does have a gruesome element because it's from our folklore. It's very primal for anyone listening. But will I go ahead and share that, Marisa? That'd be brilliant. Please do. Okay, brilliant. So I'm going to read it word for word, okay, what the actual record says. And this is recorded from a person called S. O'Rean in 1938. And he says, In Nakaini, so Knokanya in County Limerick, where Anya's hill is, an old woman named Anya lived long, long ago. She was a knowledgeable woman and used to be going with the good people. So the good people that comes from the Gaelga Dini Maha, right, which basically means the fairy folk. She had two daughters whom she strongly advised never to marry, adding if they did, they would live to rue it. Of course, this advice was not followed. So the time came when the eldest was to be married. And so she got married. Now, out in the night, the night of the wedding, Anya went into the room of the newly wedded couple. On entering, a horrid sight met her gaze, for there was the bridegroom eating the breast off the bride. Anya went back and brought in the younger daughter that she might witness the fate of that one who disobeyed the mother's warning. But what must have been her surprise when that younger daughter, on the night following, eloped with a druid who was stopping in the house. Enraged at having her advice thus slighted, Anya now shut herself up and became a still more retired recluse than ever, mixing not with her neighbours, but communing still more closely with her invisible friends. At last, when dying, which was on St. John's Eve, so around midsummer, her friends, the good people, so the fairy folk, crowded out from every lisp and rap throughout Ireland. They came trooping towards Anya's residence, each one carrying a lighted torch or clear in honour of Anya. So the fairies all come out then of the lists of the fairy mounds and light these torches in honour of Anya. And thus it is that a custom which originated in honour of Anya is still carried on as a remembrance of her. And from this custom, she is known as Anya Clear ever since. So that is the folk tale, you know, that's what was recorded, God, almost 100 years ago um, from County Limerick. And when I was reflecting on this story, I thought this sovereignty aspect was coming to me again, just very symbolically, because in a sense, and actually to practice this by saying that Anya is sometimes equated to Anu. So Anu, again, is this kind of, this monster goddess. She's very much associated with County Kerry in the south of Ireland. And she is described in a ninth century source as being the mother to all gods of Ireland. 
Anu, or sometimes she's called Anna, or we may be familiar with another potential equivalent of hers, Danu. Okay, so we've got this great mother goddess that Anya is equated to as well. And there's these hills in County Kerry called the Paps of Anu, which mean the breasts of Anu. And even if you are to look up these breasts, these hills, like you'll see on the top of each hill, um, a cairn, so an ancient primeval stone structure that look like nipples. Like when you look at the picture of these Paps of Anu, you know, or if you've been there, it just, I mean, they just look like the breasts of the mother goddess. And we know that the mother goddess, for me, essentially has that sovereignty aspect. She is the great mother who nourishes the Tua, the tribe, and she marries the king in the banished Rigi, in the wedding feast of kingship. This divine marriage of the feminine and the masculine in order for the tribe to thrive. And when the sovereignty goddess, you know, or this great mother marries the king, what she expects of the king is the fear flahman. It's an old Irish term that means the prince's truth. He has to be a just ruler. He has to be able to use judgment and discernment. And when he doesn't, he will suffer her wrath. Okay. And we've seen like where the fear Flahaman is not used by Aliel and it's not used by Morris Fitzgerald as well. Just to mention as well that this symbolic marrying of the goddess with the king and this having to be just is not unique to Celtic mythology. Like we've seen there's evidence of this in really ancient Sumerian tradition. So, you know, from modern day Iraq. So some of the earliest mythical tales from that region from about perhaps 4,000 years old. And we have Inanna, who is the goddess of earth, the heavens, the underworld. And she takes a shepherd as her king. And she goes through multiple shepherds over the lifetime, the infinite lifetime of this goddess, similar to how the goddess acts in Ireland. And so this is a very long-winded way of me saying that, like, in this folklore, this folkloric tale, like it's like Anya is warning her daughters as like these potential kind of sovereignty goddesses that these kings are unjust, that this masculine cannot be trusted. And he's going to ravage you if you marry him, if you go into this alliance with him. And this even the eating of the breast for me is really symbolic again of the breasts being the land and of how the land in our hyper-masculine patriarchal world has been ravaged. The land is being absolutely destroyed. We are literally eating it up and to the detriment of the great mother. So yeah, like, I mean, I only came across that um, tale very recently and I feel like there's a hole, <laughs> there's a whole rabbit hole to go down in that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing when like the stories from 100 years ago sourced from hundreds and hundreds before just come along in the modern moment and kind of knock you on the head and just say, no, really, we've known this for a long time. You're just living it right now. So the story is coming to the surface because you'll feel like you're looking in a mirror. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's a really fascinating thing to me around myth and folklore and something that I've really had to to navigate 
myself because myth for me should be ever evolving it's live like well particularly folklore as well that is Mm -hmm. the purpose of folklore but we should always be making meaning with myth for the times that we are in and that's something that I've only really yeah really embraced in the past number of years because when I studied when I did my degree in medieval Irish and Celtic studies it was very academic Mm -hmm. and it was very just focused on the sources, on the contextualization of the sources. And Mm -hmm. since I've gone on my deep embodiment journey, it's brought me to a new place of co-relation and co-creation with our myths and the infinite wisdom of my body. Because for me, Mm -hmm. it comes from the same source. Right. And that speaks so well for me in terms of why I started studying the Irish women poets. That's why I needed Nulan Agonal and Eileen Nuchalanan and Palomian, because they were talking about the stuff of the myths and what was really true underneath, rather than the dry and necessary interpretations around all the academics that said, okay, these are the sources and this is how they were coming alive, certainly through the 70s, 80s, 90s, when that like kind of explosion of women's poetry was happening and continues. Yeah, yeah. And like, I love how you frame that. We're very blessed on this land with these incredible poets that mm-hmm. have brought a whole new world of meaning to our traditions, particularly mm-hmm. in Gaelga as well, mm-hmm. in our native tongue. Yeah. Well, I want to loop back to that second story that you shared with us only because there's another resonance for me that it was it when with the first daughter, she married a king and the second daughter married a druid. But what a statement around what that confluence of politics and religion will do to the land. Mm, Yeah. Wow. I hadn't really thought about that aspect. So tell me more about what's coming up for you here. Well, certainly, as you frame it as that, this is the patriarchy, this is that sense of these imbalanced unions, right? But I think there's just that level of knowing so much of Irish history over the last 1500 years, particularly, has been so much around this idea of where religion and politics tend to twist and wind together. And then you compare the fact that Looking at how that first husband was eating his wife's breast, it's that sense of like, wait, you're not a man and a partner, you're a selfish child. And that sense of like turning that sense of nourishment on its head as, you know, it's supposed to be the baby nourished at the breast and you see a grown man turned monster. And to me, that feels like such a difficult and damning perspective on where we are right now in terms of pulling the fossil fuels from the earth. Certainly, there's been so much recently about the use of bog land in Ireland that I've been following and how taking of resources goes so far beyond the pale that it just becomes, again, that level of selfish, blind, childish need without that sense of reciprocity and relationship that should exist between two partners that even could exist in the healthiest mother and child relationship. Yeah, no, absolutely. That is just, yeah, you you really, I love this reflection. It's so eloquent as well. And it kind of parks back for me around Irish mythology and wider Celtic mythology as well, 
you know, and even down into Arthurian legend. Okay, so all of the traditions that come from these islands, they are based on the idea of reciprocity, right? It's no shock that like Irish people are known for being hospitable, right? Because it's in our mythology. Mm -hmm. It's ancient. There's mythical tales that are just dedicated to hostels. Okay. So like there are Mm -hmm. ancient hostels in Ireland where basically the role of the hospitaller was to just offer comfort to travelers in that vein of reciprocity. And like, it's making me think as well, and maybe this is going off topic in a way, but it makes me think as well about the Grail legends Mm -hmm. and particularly that story from the elucidation of the well maidens, mm-hmm. of the well maidens who were the gatekeepers to the other world, you know, because in our mythology, the feminine is usually um, who extends the invite to the other world. And these well maidens were protecting the wells of Britain in particular. And then this despot of a king comes along and rapes one of the well maidens and steals her chalice and enslaves her. And then with that, his men, his warriors follow suit and begin to rape the well maidens across the land. And in this way, then the other world closes up and becomes a wasteland. The wells close up because that reciprocity has been destroyed. It has just been taken and again ravaged. It's thought that even in John Carey's work on the Grail, that this story may originate as well in Irish mythology as well. There's a similar tale, again, about just the taking without the reciprocal nature. We should always be in correlation. We should always be in that reciprocal friendship mm-hmm. with the other world. And the other world is nature. Right. She is the goddess. Right, right. Our mythology comes from a time where it wasn't this utopia for women in early Irish literature. What's really curious is that women did have some liberties that women until recently didn't have in Ireland, like the ability to divorce and so forth. Mm -hmm. But again, that kind of missing piece, you know, Mm -hmm. where is the great mother? Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. did we begin to lose our way? Right. You know, because we've been losing yeah. our way for thousands of years now. Yes. You know? Yes. And it wasn't the coming of Christianity that all of a sudden stole women's power. I remember reading Mary Condren's Serpent and the Goddess, and I was in college, and it shocked me to get the idea that the coming of the church was actually a wonderful haven for women and offered them a new way because that early Celtic Gaelic society was by no means, as you were saying, some sort of beautiful utopia for women, even though the Brehan laws offered however nine ways to get divorced or whatever it was, there was still a huge amount of patriarchal control and misogyny endemic even before what may now in a modern context be conflated with the parochial nature of the church and all of that different level of control. 
Yeah, like I'd agree with that because in the early Christian church in Ireland, these kind of monasteries that were set up in Ireland were rich centers of learning where there were men and women and they absorbed some of the Philly, the Druids, the Brehavs, the judges as well. So and like what's really absolutely fascinating around these Irish monastic hubs around early Christianity in Ireland is that they wrote in the vernacular. You know, they wrote in Old Irish when really against a Latin tie. Like, again, it's <laughs> it's like the common motif with Ireland, like because we're this little island in the Atlantic that we got away with a lot right. for so long, you know, in terms of the Roman influence and all of that. So I would absolutely agree with that. And I suppose even when you look at the sovereignty goddess, in a sense, you can view that through a patriarchal lens in terms of like, because often she appears to test a king as an old hag. And then like when he proves his worthiness, she transforms into this beautiful goddess. And a lot of this is concerned with the political land Mm. who is worthy of ruling the tribe. But for me, I suppose you still can't deny the remnants of the old ways and the reality that Celtic mythology is goddess-centric. It is goddess-obsessed. We've goddesses coming out of our eyeballs here. Like I made a list recently for one of my programs around mythical ancestors, particularly around the women. And I had to stop. I had done profiles of all of these goddesses and I stopped at number 20. I was just like, okay, I have to stop because I'm just going to overwhelm people Mm -hmm. here because we have so many goddesses, you know, and that's because ancient Ireland as well was made up of these tours of these tribes. But still, for me, there's so much hope in that. I feel the connection to the mother in that. Yeah. Oh. Jen, the woman from the land of so many goddesses. I feel like that should be your moniker somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) We've played so much with the ancient and the folklore from a few hundred years ago. I would love to, as we land our conversation, to anchor this into here and the now and into the body and into our, our knowledge of this moment, because that is so much of your magic too, is tying all these pieces together. I know as you've been working with and thinking about Anya, you've been thinking about this idea of what it means to be seen. And I'd love to just hear a little more about your reflections on that and what's been coming through for you there. Yeah. So with Anya, I had this kind of whole theme in the school around shining brightly with Anya and being seen. So like in this way, asking ourselves embodied questions like, What parts of me are easily seen by the world? Mm. What parts of me do I not give myself permission to be seen? What perhaps do I see in others that I so admire? And the truth of it is that exists inside of me. Mm. And what do I desire the world to see in me? Mm. And, you know, so... I've been kind of dancing with these questions. And for me, originally, a couple of months back, I was in the kind of energy of summer, the summer solstice. And I was like, oh, you know, let's be seen, shine brightly, all of this. And then I got pulled into the cave. Mm. I got pulled into the cave of 
the death mother, essentially, mm-hmm. because the death mother and the creation mother, as we know, are the same face. And it actually began with me going to this, I went to this really beautiful ancient portal dolmen in County Kilkenny. It's called Lachanskal, which means kind of loosely like the warrior stone. It's also known as Kilmog Dolmen. And when I was there, I was expecting this kind of warrior energy and I didn't receive that at all. What I received was Dan Walker Nefa, right, which means sacred grandmother. I was like, oh, my God, this energy is sacred grandmother. Mm. And once I was in her energy, I was just pulled into the cave and the message came that I hadn't really fully integrated past and present me yet Mm. so before the Celtic school of embodiment before I was a business owner I was seen and I saw myself in a different way and I haven't integrated that way of being seen with who I am now and so I really needed to see myself to see myself as this integrated woman and so I had this really profound embodiment session with my own coach where a part of me, in order for me to really see myself, a part of me came to the fore and it was a really terrified, frightened part of me, the part of me that cares about what other people think and cares about how the external world sees me. And I felt like it was time for her to die. But in this kind of embodiment session, when I went into my body, I was kind of getting the visual of her literally clinging onto my feet. And I felt so sorry for her. I could not let her go. And eventually I just turned to that aspect of myself and I said, I see you. It is safe for you to die. Mm -hmm. And with that, then she kind of just turned into this like, almost like this ball of light and then disappeared into the ether. And I felt it. I felt it in my body. Mm. And without that inward journey, I just wouldn't have been able to see that aspect of myself. And so what Anya has shown me is that to really be seen, I had to see myself first and I had to see past and present me and integrate those pieces. And curiously, the day after that, so that happened on the Wednesday, and by the Friday, I had broken out in these bizarre kind of blisters all over my throat, the roof of my mouth, my cheeks, my tongue. And I thought, oh God, have I cut something off one of my little children? And so I went to the doctor immediately because I was like, what is this? And she didn't know what it was. She's like, that is so unusual. And look, I mean, it passed after a few days. It was like a viral infection, but I felt like it could be connected. I just felt intuitively it was. And as I was healing, so by the Sunday then, I was out my back garden and then out of nowhere, an egg (laughs) fell out of the sky and landed at my feet. And so I picked it up and it was like a newly hatched uh, thrush egg. And it just felt really symbolic. It literally landed at my big toe. And, you know, it felt like, oh, my God, this is me now rebirthing. 
This is a new aspect of myself that is ready to be seen. Wow. Thank you for taking us on that journey from the light and the height of midsummer to the darkness of that grandmother's cave to the dolmen that was supposed to be about warrior energy, but revealed itself as something older and deeper. And then into your own process of playing with light and dark and health and illness and rebirth. Wow. Jen from the island of so many goddesses, thank you so much for being a companion on this journey, for being one of my teachers. I'm so grateful to you and your insight and your depth and your magic and your way of weaving all the stories together. Oh, and likewise, Risa, you Absolutely. Everything that you have said to me is reflected back from me tenfold as just an incredible teacher and an incredible companion, as you say, in Anampara on this journey. Mm. Oh, thank you, Jen. So I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about where to find you, what you have coming up soon, what you have ongoing in your beautiful, fabulous cauldron of projects and offerings. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, you can find me at CelticEmbodiment.com or on Instagram at Celtic Embodiment. And I suppose as a result of the cave and this integration of past and present me, what is dreaming to life at the moment in October, I'm going to start this new incubator as such. So in past me, I led the education and innovation teams of a large Irish INGO, so a global justice organization. I'm hugely passionate about innovation and women's leadership. So I'm starting this incubator, this sacred womb space to explore integrated feminine and masculine leadership for entrepreneurs, creatrixes, holistic practitioners, community movers and shakers. So that is the next project that I have coming up and it's going to be a six month program for women for women leaders. And I'm really excited about that. And if I had not seen myself, this would not be happening. So I'm grateful to Anya as well for this as well. Oh, full body shivers. And I'm very excited to hear more about this because what you cook up is absolutely stunning, moving, covering both that unseen world of the mythic and the very real world of what we do each day when we set our feet on the ground. Mila Buikas, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Not Work Storytelling. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, my courses, and how to work with me as a coach, as well as my online community, The Heroine's Knot, at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram, at Knotwork Podcast, and join our listeners group on Facebook. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, Ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past 
anchor us into the present and create a more beautiful, sustainable future. <laughs>